are listening to The Sidebar, courtesy of the New York Association of Black Journalists, a program about the world of media as seen through the lens of black media makers. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the 2024 season premiere of The Sidebar, the podcast brought to you by the New York Association of Black Journalists. If you're going to have a season premiere, this is how you do it. Our guest today, comedian, actor, Emmy-nominated producer and writer Roy Wood Jr. We are beyond grateful for Roy taking a few moments of his time to sit down with our Sanja D. Gracie and talk with us. Without further ado, please enjoy the episode. Um, Sopam Deb wrote in the Albany Times Union that you might be the closest thing we have to civil rights era satirist Dick Gregory. Do you believe your caliber of humor is an inevitable owed in some way to your phenomenally accomplished journalist, civil rights activist, and National Black Network co-founder dad, Roy Wood Sr. I think that being around my father at a lot of his speaking engagements and a lot of events where he spoke about a lot of issues that are still issues today and the news that he covered, I'm sure some of that rubbed off in terms of where my interests lie. Like, I grew up watching the news. Like, the way kids have a favorite superhero i grew up with a favorite news anchor like i just i grew up watching people in suits at a desk read the news um i have an older brother um also named roy who was an anchor uh for about 15 years reporter and anchor um for the nbc affiliate in birmingham for a while so we will watch him and then i will watch the other channels I don't know how much of what I do is even in the ballpark of my father or Dick Gregory, only because they walked it. And the idea of injustice and the idea of protesting, we still have protests, but the fight for freedom is a lot more digital. It's a lot more political. It's played, the game is played a different way now. You know, Dick Gregory will go out on the road, spit something real and come home to three bricks through his living room, you know, through his living room um, door or whatever. I can spit what I spit, you know, when I when I was, you know, when I was still on the Daily Show and I'll come home to some, you know, a couple of N-words in my email inbox or, you know, some, some internet hate. That's not the same as the police pulling you over and putting a gun in your face in front of your family, you know, and dehuman- dehumanizing you. So... You know, do I use humor in the same way as Dick Gregory? I try. Do I talk about a lot of the same stuff as my dad? Most of the time. But, you know, I don't know how much of it is, you know, you know, for Sopan to put that in print about me, you know, I'm gracious and appreciative, but, you know, I'll, I'll never put myself in the same sentence as, as one of the gods. Yeah. Ah, so who was your favorite newscaster? Was it your dad? No, no. <laughs> I mean, radio, yeah. I mean, you, I have favorite radio DJs, but that's because they played the music I liked. You know, I grew up on WBRC Fox 6 News with Janet Hall and Scott Richards. And, uh, there was a brother named Art Franklin uh, who looked like me. Um, I enjoyed Bernard Shaw on CNN. As well. Oh, right. For more mm-hmm. You know, and then a little later on, once I got into sports and everything, uh, Fred Hickman and Stuart Scott 
you know, like, you know, black men, like, you know, like Stewart was more, you know, Fred Hickman was more regal and buttoned up because it was CNN's idea of sport. So it was already a little different. But then you had Stuart Scott who could be buttoned up, but also could be very loose with his verbiage and his language and how he talked and how he related to the stories, which felt more like how I talked at the lunch table, you know, around my right. classmates. So, you know, there, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of people that helped shape me, you know, Jenny Moose, I read the newspaper growing up. I, I enjoyed Louis Grizzard. Like I didn't get all of the jokes in his column, you know, mm-hmm. I enjoyed the far side, which once I got older, I understood that to be satire. Uh-huh. I just thought it, I would just call it wacky. Like, isn't that wacky? The cows <laughs> are milking the humans. Ha ha ha. <laughs> you get older and you understand, you know, but yeah, I, I used to, I used to do all of that. And I mean, you were the night or the day after the White House Correspondent Dinner, as you know, America was rocked by your commentary and by you hosting that dinner. Why did you feel compelled to give a shout out um, at the 2023 White House Correspondents Dinner to your dad? Because I wanted to make sure that I, that room, the Correspondents Dinner, that room, that night, that moment is about the members of the media who cover politics. My father was one of those people. And the idea that black, even more so now than it was at the correspondence dinner, but the idea that newsrooms are getting less and less diverse. We had a nice little push after George Floyd when everybody felt bad and they was going, let's hire a bunch of the others and, you know, get them in the game. And now that's starting to slowly be phased out. I think black press matters. I think local media matters. That's the other thing is that my father was never an AP reporter. He never worked for a national outlet other than National Black Network. And even that was condensing super specific stories, you know, for the black community. So, you know, my father, he did a lot. He contributed a lot. And I think there's a lot of people that are in that room that still represent his ideologies to this day. And I think that was kind of, that was the impetus for it, you know, which is kind of a nod, a tip to the hat for him, but also to let the people know that those of you who are left who still work in a newsroom and still cover stuff similar to my father, those stories matter as much as the national stories where people are just running around like a chicken with the head cut off, seeing what Ron DeSantis said this week. <laughs> right. I believe I heard somewhere that you said that all uh, national stories at some point, they began local. Correct. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. you know, I said that at Correspondence Journey too. Like, even something as simple as like, I love using the Barry Bond steroids and Mark McGuire steroid <laughs> stuff as, as an example. But um, I think it was Barry that was doing an interview just after a game, locker open, just uh-huh. doing an interview. And one of the uh-huh. reporters noticed a bottle of something on the shelf, wrote down what it was, then went and Googled it, and that's how the thing, that's how everything started unfolding. Wow. An eagle-eyed reporter. And you're not going to get that same level of reporting now if you're firing local. There's a lot of teams now that have lost their beat reporters, not just in sports, but also in local news. A lot of newspapers and news outlets are just taking whatever package stories come down from on high 
from the corporate overlords. So, you know, you need eagle-eyed local reporters to talk about things that are happening in one place because chances are it's happening in many places. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people like you're hilarious and a lot of people love your comedy. Um, I don't know if a lot of people know unless they check on your uh, on the website that you actually have a degree in journalism. So like your famous father, you attended an HBCU, you received a degree in journalism, but your interest in journalism and subsequent writing content for radio. Did I have to ask that? Did it come from watching your dad work at radio stations as a kid? It came later. It wasn't the it wasn't the inflection point, but it was what I, you know, eventually gravitated towards, you know, like Mm -hmm. the idea of I like cracking jokes. I like sports. That's where Mm -hmm. all this started. Well, who Mm -hmm. cracks jokes and does sports? Oh, Stuart Scott does. Keith Oberman does. Dan Patrick mm-hmm. does. There was a gentleman mm-hmm. over at uh, CNN, uh, no, at Headline News. There was a sports journalist over at Headline News, a gentleman by the name of Van Earl Wright. And Van Earl Wright used to do, like, he would just talk, that, well, in the days, meet the Jays, and come down, come down, <laughs> just the way he read sports scores. Uh huh. He only had 90 seconds. And and this is the the young people have to remember, this is a time where unless you had a laptop, which most people didn't in 1994, 95, in those days, you had to go to a computer lab and then log on to super slow digital internet to uh, um, dial up internet to find out sports scores. So more often than not in the 90s, especially the mid 90s, you had to get sports updates from television shows and news shows. And the sports update would literally be 90 seconds. Every single score of any professional, big four professional sporting events Mm -hmm. that was played the night before. Now make that funny without adding words, without adding anything. And like that was what, Van Earl Wright did that I found so interesting and fascinating and entertaining. And so, you know, those people, those were the ones that, you know, Chris Berman, you know, Fred Hickman, like the, these are the people, Jenny Moose used to do very funny offbeat stories for CNN headline news. I was like, oh, you can be funny and talk about the world. All right, I think I can do that. <laughs> what do I need to major in to do that? you don't say the same thing as pops right oh okay well i guess i am gonna be like him a little bit because i never thought of you know my dad didn't do sports so i didn't think of sports as the same but then when you learn Mm -hmm. journalism like scholastically learn it Mm -hmm. the principles are all the same you know Mm -hmm. so you know, it wasn't until college when I was really deep into it and started kind of caring a little bit more about issues mm-hmm. and people. I was, you know, I was writing for the campus paper, but I was still doing human interest stories because those interested me and those made me, you know, I was drawn to that type of content. So you know, I was doing stuff like that. Then the um, in 2000, the Bush Gore 
dangling Chad presidential election and the protests that happened in Tallahassee at then Florida Governor Jeb Bush's mansion. You know, I was there. I was marching. Like that was the first real protest that I attended. You know, how old were you as a as as a teenager? Nineteen, maybe twenty years old. Okay, twenty. You know, barely. Like anything else, I'd gone to. It's just memorial candlelight vigil, Dr. King Day candle. You know, stuff like. But like on some active. Oh, we in these streets and we walking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's hot. Y'all did this every day in the 60s. Which <laughs> in dress you know, I was in Jordans. <laughs> I was comfortable. So the idea of, oh, let's report, let's talk to people, see how they feel. That's that's when I kind of turned a corner from sports mm-hmm. into, you know, let's see what people are going through. Now, you were a delightful feature in last fall's Journalist Roundtable um, when, the abor- when the authorities abused journalists that was hosted by Richard Prince. Um, so when we all saw you come on, I believe somebody said you were going to be there, but we still were kind of surprised. Um, why did you think it was important for you to be present? Well, because I'm there to learn, too. That's the thing. Here's the thing. People think as you've been on cable, you know more than other people. I don't look, the Daily Show surrounded us with great writers and researchers who were nothing but the best and nothing but top notch. Like they were <laughs> always on top of it. And to be in a room with journalists who are doing the real work, the the work that does not go that is not properly thanked you know, that mm-hmm. it's not properly recognized, you know, to me, I also looked at it as an, as an opportunity to learn. Well, I thought it was fabulous that you were there and something that I loved, you regaled us with this story about how uh, your mother would stay in one place during the summer and you would go down South, I believe it was Tennessee or Alabama. Yeah, Mississippi. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. he would, Early in the morning, you would get up and go to the radio station with him. You would pick up your breakfast and you would head into, he would pick up the, I could, because I, when I was interning at WDAS in Philadelphia, I do remember how the news used to come in. You would rip it off or tear off the sheet. Yeah, the printer, that was the wire. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that your dad would snatch the news off the wire. You'd go into the studio and you knew exactly when to go off and on. Like how to be quiet when your father was reading the news and when to rattle your bag when it was appropriate when he wasn't on the air. Yeah, the irony of it all is that during COVID, my son learned the same etiquette around me with home setups when I was doing broadcasts for The Daily Show from our living room. Look so at that. <laughs> he sees the microphone, if the lights are on, he know, oh, dad's in there doing his thing, reading or talking to someone. You know, I don't know how much of that subliminally will, you know, permeate his subconscious in the long term. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, my dad, it was it was always just come watch what I do. Never really stopped to mm-hmm. explain anything. He never walked me through the tenements of journalism. But in hindsight, I absorbed all of it. Uh, OK, enunciate this word that he would take the sheet and he would underline certain words that he really wanted to accentuate. And that's a trick that I use now with my stand-up comedy. When I'm once a joke is polished and I've laid it out verbatim how I would like to best try and perform it, 
I highlight and pick certain words to make sure that I'm doing what I need to do on certain inflections to drive certain points of emotion. So yeah, my dad would do that. And then the thing that was so wild in the summer, my mom would drop me off with my dad in Birmingham. We were still in Memphis. This is before my mom moved. My dad was in Birmingham for like a year or two. And it was kind of one of them, don't y'all move here yet. I don't know if it's going to be a good, you know, you know, journalism, <laughs> you get fired fast for no reason. <laughs> Memphis school, the Memphis school system ended a month earlier than Birmingham. And my dad would take me to the radio station at 530 in the morning and we would do all of that. And then at seven in the morning, he would take me to Hardy's and I would get a breakfast. <laughs> And then I got dropped off at an elementary school in Birmingham <laughs> to get more school. I, yo, and my mom loved it because she's an educator. But I'm like, who sends their son on vacation to a man who sends their kid to school? But what Pops was doing, because whatever grade I was in, I sat in with the next grade up. So... Oh the the maturity the disparity in maturity from a second grader to a third grader but just being around all of these different people it forces you into different behaviors it forces you you i still got to do the homework and this is on stuff that i don't even really know anything about but you're able to piece some of it together and essentially what it was was summer tutoring to prepare me for what i was going back to um you know in memphis and my pops was so tight with the teachers, and I and I understand it now, though you could never do this now. You couldn't just take a child to a school and drop them off with a woman and just go, yeah, I'll be, I'll be back at 3.30. But, but my pops would do that, and he was so tight with the teachers, they knew to give me different worksheets from earlier in the school year. And Love it. That's what I would do. That was our rotation every day for that first month in Birmingham. Well, let me let me ask, yeah. let me let me preface my question with 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 a with a mm. slight slight story. Not too long mm. ago, about a year and a half ago, I'm on Amtrak. I'm going from New York. I'm going south. I'm going to Virginia. Have my my laptop open. I'm I'm working on um some scripting for a podcast that I was working on, and gentleman sitting next to me, um, I leave ethnicity out of it. Right. Sitting next to me mm -hmm. happens to, much older, much older, like maybe my mother's age, like mid 70s. Glances over, looks at my computer, sees that I have like news articles up and things of that nature. He asked me, says, you you into journalism? I said, well, yeah, more more new age, more podcasting, digital streaming, stuff like that. He said to me, he was like, well, who do you like? I said, well, I'm I'm a little older than, you know, you, you might think, but uh you know, I grew up with, as you mentioned, Bernard Shaw, Ed Bradley, uh, uh, Gil Noble, uh, Tony Brown's Journal. Uh, I, I grew up with, right. I grew up with all of these, all of these men, um, and you know that that those were my influences. He says to me, he was like, um, "It would serve you well, young man." So you know, raised by my grandparents, I, I didn't take a slight to to an older gentleman calling me that. He said, mm -hmm. I need you to go on that Google thing and look up a gentleman named Roy Wood Sr. And then mm. follow follow as best you can what that man has done. So 
my question to you, that Roy Wood being your father. So my question to you is, and 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 when your son gets older, because this is the track you're heading on, to think of it now, how does it feel to know that one day people will potentially be referring, be referring individuals for their education, for their growth in said field to you? I never really thought about it, you know. Um, it's wild because you, you're generally, I don't want to say you're generally selfish as people. You want to benefit. You want to do something that's for the greater good of society, but I still got to pay bills, so I still have to figure out a way to fiscally make this make sense. I've never stepped out on anything with the idea of, legacy or history and mm. longevity and anything about posterity this is the joke this is the issue that we're at right now i want to make a joke about it well it's kind of edgy mm. oh okay i don't care this is what we're gonna talk about like when i look at you know even my act that i've been trying to put together for the last couple of months you know you, you're talking a little bit about mass shootings talking about how Self-checkout has created a culture of, you know, anti-socializing with people in public. You know, we don't talk. Employees don't talk. So just the idea of even talking to a stranger is what well. you can't even ask somebody what time it is anymore. That's how much of a wall we have up in society. I live in New York. Somebody might ask me what time it is. The first thing I do is stop, take a step back from them, and I check behind me to make sure it's not a setup. Right. You know? And if I can, if it's on the street, I rotate so that my back is up against the wall so nobody can come up on my six. Then mm -hmm. I pull my phone out and tell you what time it is. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not, I've never really sat and thought about that. You know, I think it's amazing if there are people that think that what I did is worth mentioning. I think my father is far more greater. And I think that's also another reason why I mentioned about the correspondence dinner is that, you know, I don't want that erasure to happen. You know, it's very easy okay. to forget about people and what they contributed. So, you know, you know, I don't know. There was a girl that emailed me one time a couple of years ago and she was saying, I'm doing my class paper on political satire. Can I ask you a couple of questions? And, and it, like, that's when it hit me, just like on a random day in 2017. Oh, yeah, there is a lot of what we talk about that has real world consequences. And people are going to be discussing these things for a very long time. And so, you know, it's an honor. If anything, it's an inspiration to make sure that I'm always trying to get it right. You know, when I'm when I have a microphone in front of me. Mm -hmm. And do you think that you owe that to your dad's legacy? Yeah, I owe his legacy, you know, that I in in the sense that I owe it to him to continue building what he was building for black people, but I should do it my own way. My father was not right. funny. My father was a very was a very serious man, very you know, I don't know if uptight is the right word, but I rarely heard him laugh ever. The more I think about it, I don't think I ever heard him laugh, maybe around friends, but he didn't watch sitcoms. He came home, 
he will watch Wheel of Fortune and then Jeopardy. And then he will start his cable news night of Crossfire into Larry King Live into the 10 o'clock local news. That was his rotation. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, he didn't watch Cosby show. He didn't watch Martin or none of that. Everything was serious as far as I know to my dad. So, you know, I don't embody that. I don't think I ever will. But my father also was covering something that he lived, whereas I'm covering something that I'm attempting to preserve or better, you know, you know, civil rights to a degree is at least at first base, some would argue Uh second base. Some Mm -hmm. would say we still in the baddest box, but we ain't at third base. So my job is to try and get the, you know, continue things forward. My dad has been in so many major conflicts and covering them and been hit over the head with every object you can imagine. Fire hoses, dogs, then did it all. So yeah, mm-hmm. he probably has a tinge of anger <laughs> <laughs> when he's speaking to the streets, you know. <laughs> well, unless he would have told us that your father wasn't particularly uh, jocular, like we would not have known that. But how did he feel when you like? Was he around, or did he live long enough to see you start to veer? into comedy and if he did um did he say anything to you about it like no my dad was not a which goes back to what i said you know my dad was not a fan of comedy or buffoonery he just looked at it as buffoonery you know and he's also from an era where comedy unless it was prior comedy didn't really say much comedy wasn't as politically charged back then not black comedy Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Prior, maybe Gregory was starting mm-hmm. to find his legs. Paul Mooney had not become Paul Mooney yet, even in the 80s at that point. Mm-hmm. Not the Mooney we know right. from the 90s on, not the same. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he didn't laugh much. My father passed when I was 16. At that time, I was still, I was curious about journalism, but as far as as far as far I know, my father died thinking I was going to be a firefighter and then maybe a fire inspector. That uh-huh. was that was the original plan until I realized that I could make people laugh when I used to ride the bench playing baseball. So, <laughs> you know, I, there was I was in a dunk tank one time as a kid um, in middle school, raising money for our mm-hmm. soccer team. My pops didn't like that. He didn't like that at all. He just <laughs> kept saying, "Stop being everybody's monkey." <laughs> like that's all it was. <laughs> believe i grew up hearing that a time or two myself yeah i can can relate i can relate a little bit to that when you look at when you look at the the entity that has become roy wood jr you and the entirety uh the politic the journalism the comedy yes you're hilarious but but your 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 points are on point no matter how you choose to blend them and you, you blend them various ways. When you look at yourself in the entirety, do you feel as though that you're providing a required service that at no other point in this generation we've ever needed more so than now? I don't put that type of weight on myself. Okay. Like I, I just do what's interesting to me. And then if it resonates with people, great. 
you know, I think comedians just do what they do. And then it's up to the people to decide the worth of the product. You know, I just, I just make the product, you know, it's Nike. Some of these (laughs) shoes going to be all right. And some of these shoes y'all going to be at the mall fighting each other over. (laughs) I just made a shoe. My job is to make shoes. And so to set out with the intention that this joke will create the shift in the thing, I think that's a very dangerous place to start your creative process from because then you are simply creating what you believe will garner reaction versus what's really on your heart. You know, whether it's inspiring or considered disrespectful or insulting, I don't think any comedian sets out trying to manipulate the public at large one way or the other. It's like, this is just jokes about a truth that I see. Now, if it happens to be a truth that everybody else sees, well, then that joke got some legs, <laughs> you know? Okay. But I, I've never set out, like, like even with the correspondence dinner, I didn't walk away from that thinking, yeah, I'm gonna fix all the issues in a 20 minute comedy set. Nah, I don't, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe the second time. If I go back, then maybe, yeah. <laughs> Which, you know what I want to ask you, if you were asked to host another White House Correspondents Dinner and Donald Trump was president and present at the dinner, what would that night be like? I don't know. I don't know. I got to be careful (laughs) because his administration be listening to everything. (laughs) And they do be listening. Like, I'm not even I'm not even joking right now. Like, they we did we did something. What was it? What was it called? It's called Black Trump. You just gotta you gotta Google it. I don't, I don't have time to explain it. I Black Trump. Okay. Black Trump, and essentially, it's a we made a rap song with lyrics comprised of nothing but Trump quotes and tweets. <laughs> we just took everything he's ever said publicly and made a braggadocious ass because he's always bragging. So we just. We just he bragged so much you could turn it into a rap song, and we did, and it was funny. And then, like a month later, we had to go to a Trump event. We were trying to cover Trump for 2016 election, and one of our um, associate producers sends in and um, sends an email to 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 their PR team asking for access, and their reply was a link. To the black trump video oh oh so you are watching big fans are you um i think you hold trump true to the same standards as every other president you know whatever policies is going crazy those are the policies we're going to talk about so Uh that's to me that would be that's the plan like that's the that that would be the plan, but you know, I don't know. I don't imagine Trump having a um, a comedian. And if you do, and if you do get into um, if you do get into it with Donald Trump, you're getting deported, even if you are. <laughs> like they already they're already talking about revoking birthright citizenship so then how you know they ain't gonna retroactive that 
And then right. now all of a sudden you you a new immigrant. They create a new category. Now I'm deported because I wanted to crack a couple jokes about this man on C-SPAN so I can get some <laughs> likes on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you, Will, with DeSantis dropping out over the weekend, do you think that this uh, reset to Donald Trump being uh, president again is very likely? No, I think Biden in that administration still has an opportunity to flip the centrist voters. You know, I just think elections in America are less about convincing everyone and not just convincing that 20 percent of Americans. OK, because 40 and 40 going to vote for their party because that's just the gang warfare that we've created. And then you've got 20 percent like that's literally all this is like. America, like presidential elections in America, it's just, it's a dude trying to convince a, a woman's homegirl that she going to be <laughs> safe with him when they leave the club. Wow. Uh, I don't know if that analogy makes sense. but it's, <laughs> Haven't had to it's, do that a time or two. Yeah, it makes a whole lot yeah, of sense yeah. to me. Yeah, and I feel like women know when a dude come up, listen, your homegirl so cool. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if she can be leaving with you. And you just got to lay on that sauce. That's what that's what convincing an undecided voter. <laughs> I like your metaphors, laying on the sauce. Uh, <laughs> laying on the sauce. Yeah. No argument here. President. No argument here. <laughs> so to pivot to another president, you hosted a conversation about fatherhood with President Barack Obama like two years ago. I yeah. want to know, how yeah. did that come about and what was that like for you? Um, you know, I, I, I have to give props to the people over there at the dad and fatherly, you know, for reaching out to me and even caring enough and thinking that I was capable of conducting that conversation. The president's smooth, man. And, you know, that conversation is still live online. It's myself, Obama, and uh, three or four other fathers from around the country just talking about the ups and downs and the joys and the beauty of fatherhood. Um, and when you say the beauty, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, and so, you know, they 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 reached out and they were like, do you want to talk to the president? I was like, yeah. And then the vetting <laughs> process begins. <laughs> we did this over Zoom. They were still like, yeah, we got to patch it down digitally. Yeah, I call it a digital pat down. They go through all your old tweets, make sure you ain't said nothing crazy. <laughs> who you like, who you follow. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was smooth. It was really smooth. I really loved it. It was really yeah. it was important, but it was casual and comfortable and it just really it felt nice. It yeah. felt nice. Um when you say the beauty of fatherhood, just to hear a man say that, the beauty of fatherhood. Um, talk about that a little bit more. What do you mean by that? just the idea that you have an opportunity to create a positively contributing member of society and you get to instill the best things about yourself and the beauty of it now is that we are armed with how to diagnose ourselves and finding the worst parts of yourself and your psyche and making sure that you avoid passing it on to your children you know be it yelling or punching something or However you deal with your own frustrations, we are at least aware that our kids are watching. Now, whether or not you make the same choices versus 
our fathers and grandfathers who just had trauma on their ass <laughs> right. at all times and never had a moment to even sit and acknowledge or talk about it because they had to go to work. They had to go and do the thing. White people chasing them at night. Like you just just never got a breather. So to recognize stress and be able to navigate that and to shield your children from it, that's a gift. That's a blessing. Let me ask this question. To be to to be as, as articulate and refined with the way you put out your work. I've come to learn through experience and talking to people that one of the most significant things in your life that allow you to be that way is balance. So what is the downtime of Roy Wood Jr. like? What is your disconnect moments like? What are, are, are you shutting the door and pulling the shades? Are you going fishing? I mean, you, what is it? Sudoku, jigsaw puzzles, and PlayStation. Those are the those are the big three. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes, uh, you know, rip and run with my son. We'll shoot ball sometimes. Sometimes we'll play baseball. Like we, do. I try to mix it up and do activities with him as well. And I try and just disappear into into childhood again like the cool thing about being a parent is that you get to have a second childhood if you allow Mm -hmm. yourself to Mm -hmm. and on that note i have to ask you and this will be my last question why would you go back in time and tell the 16 year old roy what advice would you give a 16 year old roy wood jr that there's a comedy club on the white side of town (laughs) that you didn't even know existed because you just don't know what you don't know and you should figure out a way to get your mama to take you to that open mic night. <laughs> you watch way Love too it. much stand up and you don't even enjoy it anymore because you're analyzing it. That's when it's time to start. <laughs> Go right now. And it would be another three, four years before I would start comedy. But th- that would be the one thing. It's like, oh, man, could you imagine me with three more years of joke? Exp- oh, my Lord. <laughs> Well, I thank you all. I appreciate this. We wish to express our most sincerest thanks to our distinguished guests. If you have enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe and give The Sidebar a great review. As a reminder, the views and opinions expressed in every episode of The Sidebar belong to the individuals who made them and not to the NYABJ. For more information on the NYABJ, please visit www.nyabj.org. Music by Halizna Raps.